0: The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun.
1: Yeah. Okay. We're going to go live. Uh... I click the little button and we're live. Wow, that was fast. It is Monday, October 4th, 5.03 PM Eastern time. We're a little bit late because of me and not as late as I would like to be because of Ben. Uh, it is uh, We are not allowed to have fun anymore, but in lieu of fun, we have Noah Rosenbloom, legal historian, uh, the poor sap who is in my, uh, my uh, legal workshop like writing class, uh, my first year of my PhD, at where yeah, of like which there were like five, six of us, and then like, and then um, now a law professor at NYU, and thanks for thanks for coming on the show, Noah.
2: Thank you for having me. I was hoping that this honor would come at some point. I never expected it would come so early in my career.
1: Yes, I mean we're very the honor
2: defined people. as how being on the <laughs> fun. Um, Absolutely. Uh, I I, I, in lieu of fun I just I see it on Twitter but I'm very uncool so I knew that this was happening I thought all the cool kids got to do it all the cool professors were doing it but I was just left to my own devices just well look we can
0: defer it until later in your career please. no yeah, we'll please, <laughs>
1: don't take it away
2: from me now that I'm here
1: truly I mean so um, hold on. I'm going to like, okay, Scott's internet is messed up. He's asking me to reboot. So I'm not going to like hold out hope. And like, for some reason, I can't see the chat. So no one yell at me. Okay. Yeah, Scott uh, will in text
0: when he's ready know, to know, anyway. fail to come in yet again. Oh, there he is. Can oh, you hear hi, us, uh, Scott?
3: Yeah. I, I, hi. Yeah, I can. Um, uh, the, uh, the internet has been wonky today. Did you hear everywhere. I sent
0: you a HIPAA violation? Yeah. <laughs> Don't, okay.
3: I did. Yeah. Noah. Do you re-
1: Hi. We're live, by the way, Scott.
3: Sorry, FYI. I'm
1: sorry? We're live, just FYI. Already. Oh,
3: okay. Okay. Oh. Hello, Noah. How are you? Um, <laughs> I, just... Good to see you, Scott. We, we've met before, haven't we? D- didn't you used to run legal his- history forum? I...
2: Yes, my, my only memory of you, though, is when I was a student, you once um, sat through an entire workshop perched on your chair like a bird, sort of on like the balls of your feet, folded over, and you made lots of inane comments, and your questions were really dumb. And then at the end of the workshop, you gave really smart feedback, and so I was very confused. <laughs>
4: i'm actually (laughs) i i I love the
0: description of scott perched like a bird on on the chair because he often sits like that on him i actually like this is my favorite i actually
1: love this because also well first of all you do this because you have a bad back and then second of all uh i actually love it because i just think it's a more comfortable way to sit and i don't understand why we're so like Loath to like sit, however, is comfortable, and why we're like so constricted by like norms that we can't just sit whatever way we it's want. The, it's
3: it's the it's the lumbar industrial complex. My,
0: <laughs> my old uh, taekwondo instructor, uh, uh, Master Kim, calls that position old Korean man pose. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm really yeah. glad
1: you attributed that to your Taekwondo instructor.
0: No, no I, I, look, I would never... Uh, he just, you know, describes it as, as a manner in which men of his grandfather's generation routinely
3: sit. Um, okay. can, can, can we just get back to my inane stupid comments? I was going <laughs> to
1: say, like, that's a little harsh. I don't think that
2: he's
3: Here. inane. Like... Yeah, so, so, know, so like, was this a... Was this a moot? Was I mooting yes. somebody? Like, was yes, it a...
2: this was... This
3: was oh, a, Oh, okay. Okay, no, was so this character. is like a job talk.
1: He was in character.
3: I was, I was trying... Yeah, I was... Right, I was trying to um, simulate what it's like to give a job talk, and that's why I was doing a lot of inane, stupid comments. It
2: was amazing. I did not know who Scott was, and so I walk in here, and I'm very intimidated and scared because I'm told there's a big law professor, and truly the questions were just like, I mean, whatever. It really felt like maybe he hadn't read the paper. And then at no the end kidding. of the talk-
1: <laughs> That never happens in a real job talk.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, but then it was more, it was the disjunction. It was then the, the comments at the end that showed that in fact, actually Scott understood everything about the paper and everything about the talk and gave really incisive feedback. And so I was very disoriented. Okay, okay. well, the, the,
3: the, the, the combination of inanity, stupidity, and brilliance is much my, my brand. For. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. In hindsight, yeah. so let uh,
2: perfect preparation for my own experience in the profession so far. <laughs> gotcha.
3: <laughs> okay. Well let let's 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 start this up. So
1: I think that we were gonna start kind of um, so noah like your most recent paper i think was it your job talk paper was about the unitary executive and kind of the history of it and kind of how the conception of it has changed over time and so like i don't know i guess you can almost give us your job talk pitch in a way and kind of like let us kind of like know what your paper is about hopefully i know do you try not to have like try not to like go into PTSD or something. And the more but,
0: Facebook jokes you can weave into a talk about the unitary executive, uh, the more yeah, if, will you be to be praised.
1: If you suddenly start glitching, yeah. we'll know it's because we're based on Facebook servers. So man.
2: So um, Mark Zuckerberg, in order to further exercise control, in able to know, I can't even pretend to do it. Does anybody <laughs> know what the unitary executive is? How much background am I supposed to give? I, people- I was just.
3: I, I was actually going to say, can you say what the unitary executive is? Because I'm not quite sure I I understand it. Because my sense of it makes it, it makes it seem like such a stupid idea that maybe I don't I, I don't understand it.
0: Yeah, I
1: have, no to, I have to refresh. I'm listening, but I I, oh, I, okay. I I hope everything will keep going. But like, I'm not able to see the chat, and I kind of need to do that to run the show. So I'll be right back.
2: They're just I think there's a line, I think it's um, this scholar named Peter Strauss, who's a, a major scholar in administrative law, who once said something like, look, everybody agrees that the executive is unitary. The entire question is just what it means for it to be unitary. I mean, that what yeah. he's referring to is the idea that there is one person who is president of the United States and who the Constitution says has the executive power, but what flows from that? And so at one extreme, you've got some people who started to argue that because the Constitution vests the executive power in one president. Therefore, anything that might look like executive power that's done by the government needs to be more or less directly under his control. So that would be, call that the strongest version of the unitary executive theory. There are lots of other questions that would flow from that, right? Like, what is executive power? How much control does the president have to have over it? And people argue or disagree about those things. A kind of intermediary, so, oh, sorry, one last thought, which is, the most extreme version of the most extreme theory would be to say everything that the government does that isn't either Congress or the courts is executive power. And therefore, everything that is not Congress or the courts needs to be more or less under the control of the singular person of the president. So that would be the most extreme version of the unitary executive theory. There's still a- So it's
1: kind of the idea, so this is the idea that like, like the administrative like the fourth like the fourth like the fourth branch of government. Fourth branch.
2: Yeah. Right. It's yeah. really just con- should be just controlled by the president. So if, if you if you hold to that theory, right, the idea would be something like, you know, if if the uh, um I I don't understand how the internet works, Cape. I hear it's a bunch of tubes. That's okay I don't understand down, how which is why Facebook, is down. Works, so, <laughs> That's, <laughs> that's also up. a bunch of tubes. Yeah. It is true. A lot of tubes the thought would just be something like if facebook is down because there was some administrator who somewhere decided that they were going to pull the plug if if joe biden got on the phone and said i demand that facebook be back up he could just call whoever pulled the plug and say i order you to plug it back in and that person would have to do it no dispute that's what the law would require and more importantly if the law tried to prevent the person who was in charge of putting the plug back in from doing what the president ordered them to do, if the law gave them space to make their own decision or required they take other factors into account or possibly disagree with the president, well, then that law would be unconstitutional, and would have to be struck down. So that's the most extreme version. I, there,
3: I, 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 smaller have, I, I was just curious, first of all, you you explain things beautifully, um, um, but um, my, my question is like, what what is, what is the unitary executive do like on simple cases like the Fed chairs or something indep- independent agencies, like like how, how, how do they think about that? Do they say that's not executive?
2: Yeah, I know your intuition is excellent. And in fact, it's sort of devastating the question that you're asking because the Fed chair is a perfect example of something which administrative lawyers, as we watch the drift towards a more extreme version of the unitary executive theory, are all freaking out about. And here we have to pivot from doctrine to history Because the truth about the unitary executive theory is that even though people want to root it either in the Constitution or deep in the history of American law, the kinds of argument that I just sketched out, you don't really find it in American law before the 1970s, and really you don't find it until the 80s or 90s. And so when it's being made in the 70s and then the 80s and 90s, it's being made as part of a project to deregulate. And we can get into more of that, what deregulation actually means, but it's it's really pushed as a tool to give an executive power to cut through certain kinds of regulation. And that's highly identified with a more, you know, neoliberal or, or conservative vision of government, which tends to be interested in a kind of insulated monetary policy, right? And protecting the sorts of decisions the Fed might make from political control. So you've got this inherent tension where on the one hand, they actually don't want the Fed responsive to the political pressures of the government. On the other hand, it's kind of hard to figure out how you would insulate that actor from presidential control. And Scott's example is, like I said, it's just, it's cutting right to the heart of it because surely the Fed chair is the one who's the most insulated. you know. For for those, of, for me, Greenspan has always been a piece of history, but like that story is so bound up with the idea of someone who can do something that's gonna hurt everybody, but in the interest of preserving the integrity of the American economy. Um, so, so just back to you, Scott. There's no great answer to that question. Under the latest doctrinal test that was elaborated in SalA law, which is a case from a couple terms ago, the Supreme Court has suggested that things would look different if you had an agency that had multiple heads instead of a single head. And the idea there is not that they're not exercising executive power. It's more like if it's a single head, then they have to be directly responsible to the president because or else that person is exercising a kind of executive power in violation of article two. But if it's a multi-member agency and the president gets to pick some people of that agency, then sure, there's a little bit of insulation, but they're deliberating together. We're getting other positive, good democratic values. And so it's okay that the president doesn't have direct control
1: that's such an interesting like seemingly benign kind of like structural like a structural outcome like the structure of building something in that way having such kind of like having such effect I guess is is interesting like you'd think like who would think that like having one person or two or three or six like I mean like well I mean I you start to get towards like, okay, half of them are appointed by a president and half of them are appointed by
0: like whatever the body is or whatever.
1: But I do think that that's kind of, that's super interesting. Um, ben, do you, you're looking puzzled. I have
0: I'm, a million questions.
1: Okay. And I, <laughs>
0: um, so I want to figure out w- with you how much of unitary executive theory is universally accepted, how much of it is controversial, and how much of it is extreme. Um, Because the term ever since uh, Dick Cheney era has a kind of a bad rep. But my impression is that almost all of what we call the unitary executive is utterly uncontroversial. So I wanna walk you through a a few examples and just see if we can sweep 90% of the disputes off the table. Um, The first thing when we say the unitary executive is that the, the only thing that's unitary, first of all, is the executive. It doesn't mean that Congress and the courts have to be in the same place, but the executive branch Generally speaking, only gets to file one brief in a litigation, right? It's a you you can't have the Justice Department and the State Department don't take different positions. The government forms one position, and it takes a position as a government. Basically, with certain independent counsel investigations, putting to the side for a second, special counsel investigations. Basically, everybody agrees with that, right?
2: Well, it's it's look, I I. I, I, I'm just, I'm remembering, I, I was a law clerk when the Zarda case was being argued. I was at the New York Court of Appeals. And so it was being argued en banc at the Second Circuit, which happened so infrequently that my judge gave us the afternoon off to go hear the arguments. And the first question was from uh, Judge Loyer because the EEOC had filed a brief on one side and the Department of Justice filed a different brief on the other side. And so wow. Judge Loyer had an experience in government, started the argument by saying, what is going on here? And, and it was amazing, because the, the Department of Justice lawyers said, like, I actually don't have an answer for you, judge. And frankly, I don't think I have to give one. And the EEOC lawyer said, I'll tell you what's happened. Like, the consistent position of this department had been that rights of, of trans folks and people, and, and, um, and the, the, the consistent position of the EEOC had been that discrimination on the basis of gender identity or sexual orientation was a violation of Title Seven. Trump got elected. He wanted to change the position of the department. He didn't convince us we kept to the old line, this case was already in progress, and so blah, blah, blah. So so even on, I think on that threshold level, should the government form a single coherent position? It's actually, it's a it's a great question. I can understand why we might want the government to form a coherent position, but as a boring factual matter, there are definitely, there are definitely attested situations where it hasn't.
3: But, but wait, you just said the EOC says it's not gonna listen to the president. Um, that's pretty, big violation of the unitary executive. Forget you have multiple um uh conflicting positions in litigation if you have an agency saying we're not listening to the president. I'm so, very happy amazing. that, said that I was so, so, to say
0: that so hang on a second but let's <laughs> let's take that case and ask how um how um uh how unitary the executive really is. So first of all a judge confronted by that situation basically says to the EEOC, what the, what the hell are you doing in my court, <laughs> separately from the Justice Department, right? Like, the executive branch, the reason it's the first question is that there is an expectation that the executive branch only gets to take one position at a time. It can change its position, but it only gets to file one brief. Um, I remember during the Ken Starr era... There was a fight between the solicitor general's office and the office of the independent counsel over who got to file the gray brief in a Supreme Court case. And the reason was that the independent counsel took the position, hey, I represent the United States for purposes of this case. I get to file the gray brief. And the Solicitor General's office took, take, took the position, take a hike, guy, with the Solicitor General's office. We get to file the gray brief. If memory Wait. serves, the Supreme Court said, both of you should file normal colored briefs. Um, uh, Love it. Love it. Um, <laughs> but generally speaking, the unitary executive means... So the second question is on that, if, if Donald Trump had really cared about it, and had, could he have dismissed the EEOC commissioners who refused to file the views of the law as articulated by the authoritative view of the executive branch, which is to say the solicitor general's office in that case?
2: So the, the boring administrative law answer would be to say, you know, do the commissioners of the EEOC have what's called removal protection, right? Are they protected by? Sorry, this is one of the two cats. They, they already told Kate, but the, the cats sleep on these little beds next to the desk. Yeah, <laughs> they like they like hearing people. We're, we're pro. We're,
0: we're pro, pro we're animal pro appearances.
3: Also,
1: yeah. Scott has so, the most adorable cat, but she doesn't come on the show because it's secretly his password. So like,
3: <laughs> <laughs> that's right, cats are right. But we're <laughs> We're, we're um, anti animal cruelty on the show. I,
2: well, is that fair? Is that fair?
1: Medium about human cruelty, especially when
2: okay, it's to Ben. Okay. <laughs> so just to circle back to Ben's question, so so the standard administrative law quest answer would be, you know, do they have for-cause removal protection, which is basically did Congress, when they created these positions, say that they could only be fired for certain reasons? Now there's a question about what kinds of restrictions Congress can put on those positions. And right now we are living through a moment when, when that law is in flux. But I think the standard line would have been that um, until pretty recently, it was thought that Congress was allowed to protect certain officers, and in particular, the heads of independent agencies, and that those protections included allowing them to be safe from being fired even for a policy disagreement. So the okay. standard language was inefficiency neglect or malfeasance and and most authorities have thought that means that it just because you disagree with the president doesn't mean the president can fire him so
0: let's can can we can we just can we define the dispute as follows everybody agrees as a general matter that the united states only gets to take one position at a time with the with the caveat that there is a question of whether independent agencies can uh, take positions dis- distinct and disparate from that of the regular executive branch? And if they do, whether that constitutes a four cause basis for removal so that the president can harmonize the position of the
2: executive branch? I think so. I, I don't, I don't want to, I, I, I feel like I'm becoming nitpicky and I hate that. And so I'm, I'm really sorry. The, the question that's sort of eating at the back of my head is you know, Congress does make different, dis- so, so the necessary and proper clause gives Congress the power to build out the government, and at different moments that power has been understood to, to reach further or less far, but Congress does make deliberate decisions to endow certain actors with, say, litigation authority, and so just on this super boring question of like, how many positions can the government take in a case, it does seem like, my, and I, I just I don't know the particular statutes on this, and it is super weird when the government turns up on multiple sides of the issue, but I don't think it would take us a lot of work to build a hypo together where you might be able to get a lot of folks to say actually in this case it's okay that the government came um, in on two positions. Uh, okay, so I'm like I, all involve independent agencies.
0: I agree that you can build the hypo. Right. Um, we have hundreds of thousands of cases that the United States, the U.S. federal government is involved with every year, and we have to build hypos to do that. As a functional matter, the unitary executive means when the United States appears in a litigation, it takes one position in almost all cases. Mass, mass majority of the
2: cases, absolutely. And,
0: and that the disputes within the executive branch of what position to take are resolved before the United States goes into court?
2: In the vast, vast majority of the cases, absolutely.
0: Okay, that's point number one. Point number two, um, functionally, I think the executive, the unitary executive means that anybody who is wielding the executive power bracket whatever that means, has to be a appointed by the president or subordinate to somebody who is appointed by the president. So even if the person is at an administrative agency, uh, supposedly independent agency, and even if that person is a party diverse from the president's party person, the Republican on the FCC Formally, that person is nominated by the president and confirmed by the Senate.
1: But isn't, can I just like interject for a second here? I feel like what you're saying is like the entire idea behind kind of the firing and hiring power, which is just the idea that like whoever has the power, whoever has the power to like wield over you, like the loss of your job or the creation of your job is going to basically be the one who like, that is the branch in which you were in.
0: The power to hire, the power to fire, yeah. is, the power to, is the power to direct. Yeah.
1: And there are right. certain people
0: in the Sorry, government who we
1: have... Not to like, not to like have... all of the, the nitty gritty, but I just like, feel like we're kind of like talking around stuff.
0: No, oh, no, yes. I, th- I, I, I think we're zeroing in on the definition oh, of the unitary okay. executive. I was, did I that right, the, that the, <laughs> the power to fire is, this is what yeah. we saw with Jim Comey, this is what we saw with Jeff Sessions. And it it was utterly uncontroversial from a constitutional point of view. We saw it with Watergate,
1: and we saw it with, like, Clinton's impeachment. I mean, like, there are, like, I mean, and it's, like, also the basis for, like, the war power. Like, I just think that there's, I think it has an intuitive root. Like, I think it is basically, like, where the the power lies is, like, it's just like a tracing of power.
0: But the point is, as 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 a a functional matter. Whatever your constitutional theory, so much is accepted about the president's authority to fire, hire, and therefore direct people that, in fact, the president does control the executive branch in a very meaningful sense.
2: Sure. Right. Well, this is this this intuition is, I think, exactly part of why I want to take the historical turn because I think the yeah. intuition that Ben just elaborated is exactly right. I was talking with one of my colleagues recently who said wait, isn't the president just the CEO of the government? And it's like, yeah, I think a lot of people think that. And if you read Sela Law or Arthrex, right, you'll see the Supreme Court saying exactly what Ben was saying, that the whole thing needs to have this pyramidal structure with the president at the top. But what's weird is that historically, that's not how it always operated. And if you look at the constitution, you can start to see traces of that. So here's just a very small one that, that I've just been thinking about a lot. Right? Everybody thinks that the appointment power in the Constitution means the president has to appoint them, or if not the president, someone appointed by the president. And that's true to a degree, but of course, the Constitution allows Congress to vest the appointment powers in the courts of the United States. For right, inferior ju- officers. For inferior officers, but that can include, under some circumstances, a U.S. attorney, right? Like recall when the U.S. attorney for the Southern District lapsed, it was the courts who appointed the U.S. attorney. And the courts are designed precisely to be insulated from any political pressure. And that's this
1: happened. This lifetime tenures in the U.S. Attorney scandal as well.
2: And so you get this situation where, actually, by design, you might have folks in the hierarchy exec, act, using what everyone agrees is executive power, yeah. who are constitutionally insulated from presidential control. And that's like not—that's not Noah's crazy hypo. Back to Ben's point. How often does it happen? Jesus Christ, vanishingly small number of cases. The vast majority of the government is built out exactly as Ben said. And therefore that intuition is right 99% of the time. Mm -hmm. But it matters a ton whether that intuition is in fact like the operative theory of the government because what about that 1% of cases? And sometimes, okay back to the history, the 1% of cases is precisely where we might be worried about government accountability. So in the 1920s, right, they're building out the federal budgeting process. This is, this is, it's in my job talk paper. There's also a great article about this by my friend, John Dearborn, who teaches at Vanderbilt, who's a political scientist. I'll find it's it. The budget and Accounting Act of 1921. And Congress is recognizing that it's just not able to, to run a, um, basic, I mean, I'll, I'll give you more of the backstory if you want, but the federal budget is a mess. And so they want to let the president pitch a federal budget to Congress. And and Congress recognizes that if they allow the power of the purse to go into the executive, they will have given up just a tremendous amount of power. So what do they do? They create an office whose job it is to audit the executive, called the Comptroller General, who enjoys like a 15-year term for cause removal protection. And at least at one key moment, that officer claims the right to decide on whether any money that the president wants to spend is in fact being spent in accordance with Congress's wishes. As it happens, the guy who's in that office when the New Deal runs around is a big anti-New Dealer. And so he just says, Roosevelt wants to spend this money, but I've read the appropriations. I don't think that the money is being used in conformity with Congress's will. I'm not gonna let you spend the money. So he uses what's called a pre-approval disbursement authority to prevent the government from spending money. Okay, I think as a policy decision, it was terrible, in part because I love the New Deal. I think as a way of running the government, it was a disaster. You go into the archives and you see executive agencies writing back and forth saying, how can this man do this? But was it unconstitutional? Maybe, I tell you this much, it was less unconstitutional than the National Industrial Recovery Act, which was unconstitutional, everybody knew it, and was only operative for a few years. The Comptroller General, if he was unconstitutional, he nevertheless managed to affect the government for a long roll. And, and, and so back to sort of the 99% versus the 1% puzzle, you know, how unconstitutional was it? And especially to come back to the present moment, right? if we're thinking about how to rein in an errant executive it matters a ton whether whether something like that is just beyond the realm of possibility, or you know whether you could have something like the inspectors general with like a little bit more bite in them, even if that still means that most of the government is in a is in a pyramidal structure.
0: Okay, wow, wow. so I think that's like a hugely useful yeah, clarification good, yeah. that everybody's going to agree that the government functions in a more or less Scalia-like, if you take Scalia's famous descent in Morrison v. Olson as as the ultimate statement of the sort of hardcore unitary executive theory, that that's the way it operates 99 point plus percent of the time. The question is what kind of exceptions are you ever allowed to build? And is it 0.1% of the time or 0.0001% of the time that you're actually allowed to deviate from that? Excellent.
2: Yeah, and wait, just one quick asterisk before we move on from this, which is just, I think, I think Ben, the way you put it is perfect and excellent and applies to the contemporary United States, right? Part of this, this other paper that I'm working on right now with Lev Menand and Ash Ahmed is trying to show that actually that vision only comes into being pretty late. And by pretty right. late, I mean in 1900, if we had said what you just said, I think people would have said, Oh, I don't actually think that's correct at all. Although Taft said
0: something like what I just said in Meyer.
2: I love it. This is so, so you're, you're now like in the heart of my current research agenda. Andrea Katz uh, and I are writing a paper by, that tries by to know that you I mean, Did I not tell me. you this? I,
1: wore, I like told you. He was like, How prepared would you be? Like, no, just know your job talk. Like, you'll just like. <laughs> I love I, I, I
0: if, our, if so, our audience
2: is into this, like, this is, you know, so, come, come let, visit any time. Yeah, so let me give the
0: audience a little bit of prep on this. So audience Taft audience. is the only former president who ever got nominated to the Supreme Court. And he becomes chief justice. And he has a real concern for the... He loved being chief justice. He hated being president. <laughs> um, he's also, by the way, the only... Person who ever ran for the presidency with the campaign slogan "Everyone loves a fat man," which I think is one of the great things about William Howard Taft. Um, his tenure, I didn't know that he owned his fatness. Is that no, crazy? no, no? He weighed like 400 pounds. I mean, I, I know. And, and that. he like, and he, he and he, like he ran on it. it. He was <laughs> like, he was like, like this was a selling point. Slogan was "Everyone loves a fat man." And I I really respect him for that. I think it was um, completely irrelevant to this conversation, but just one of the one of the truly endearing features of him as a person. He was uh, not a particularly distinguished uh, Chief Justice, but he did uh, write what, for many conservatives, is the pre Scalia authoritative statement. Uh, uh, in in a case called Myers. Um, and uh, uh, so why doesn't Myers um, uh, written by a former president in his capacity as Chief Justice? Um, why doesn't Myers address um, uh, the idea that this is a newfangled idea, you know, a newfangled notion?
2: Yeah. Well, so I'll give you a quick answer, but the answer is really just gonna be an advertisement for this article that Andrea and I are working on right now. So so stay tuned, but the two pieces of the pitch are one that in fact, Taft is very self-consciously writing into law and not just law, but constitutional law, a new conception of the presidency and a new performance of the presidential office that has emerged during the progressive era. And that his predecessor and successor Teddy Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson, are each really a key part of helping to create. So the, the world of what it means to be the president of the United States is being transformed in those 20 years and Taft kind of gets the last word in Myers. So the first point is, you know, why doesn't Myers settle that in fact this has been super old? It's because actually the vision of the president in Myers is the new progressive presidency, which itself is only about 20 years old. So that's point one, and point two, once you read the Myers case carefully, it actually goes out of its way to carve out certain kinds of protections that help reveal its Progressive Era pedigree and distinguish it from some of the more extreme forms of unitarianism. So two kind of specific ones, right? Taft and the Progressives in general are really committed to civil service reform. They're very concerned about what they see as what, what, so what the old, back in the day in the 19th century with party presidents, the reason you wanted to get elected president was so that you could fire everyone who worked for the government, and hire everybody who worked for your party. And that was a system of government inaugurated by Andrew Jackson, and it was known as the Spoil System or Rotation in Office.
1: I thought you were gonna say the Russians, but yeah, I guess they
2: <laughs> Putin, Putin. And so the, the progressives were really upset about that because they thought it made for corrupt and unprofessional government. And Taft, even though he was so large, was known to be a really vigorous administrator and was really committed to civil service protection. And 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 this is and it, it becomes a contemporary issue today insofar as one of the last things Trump tried to do when he left office was to declassify a whole bunch of the civil service to take it out of the protections of the Pendleton Act, which was the progressive era innovation. So Myers's opinion, Taft's opinion, in Myers goes out of its way to say, I know I want the government to be accountable to the executive in this way that's really very progressive. That's about an individual leader elected by the people who realizes democratic will by projecting it down through the government, right? That's not the vision of the founders. The founders don't want a directly elected president. The founders don't believe in a popular mandate. That's all the progressive era. Taft says, I believe in all that, but I still want to protect civil service. I still want to protect what we would now call Article one judges. This is not a threat to that. Okay, Morrison, Morrison is a threat to that. And so there's a way in which there's actually daylight between Myers and Scalia. And okay, taking off my lawyer hat and putting on my legal historian hat, of course there's daylight, right? As far as, Meyer, as, far as the rest of American law is concerned, Myers is almost immediately abrogated by Humphrey's executor. So Myers comes down in 25. It's a case about a postman. And, and incidentally, I am convinced that Woodrow Wilson, the president who generates the Myers case, that he never actually fired the postman, that the whole thing is made up, but you gotta read the article to understand that, that little golden nugget. Okay, so, so Myers, right, within 10 years, or yeah, within 10 years, you've got another case in which the Supreme Court says, Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt is president, he tries to fire the people who make up the Federal Trade Commission. One guy in particular, who's a conservative holdover, who was put there by Coolidge to really like, put the stake down in favor of laissez-faire government. Roosevelt tries to fire him. He says, I can fire him under Myers. Taft says, I have all this power. And the Supreme Court, including a bunch of liberals, say, actually, you can't fire the FTC. And so from from the time that Humphrey's executor is decided until basically a few years ago, it was widely understood that Myers is, Myers was, was more or less dead letter or was mostly dicta. And the only people who tried to rely on Myers were those crazy Republicans in the office of legal counsel in the Reagan administration, who use it to come up with this cockamamie idea that the president can control the administrative state and issues this executive order called 12291. And it just happens that that becomes the entire foundation for the government that we have today, adopted wholesale by Clinton, Bush to Obama, Trump, and now Biden. So this, this tiny little line from Myers, which as far as American legal history was concerned, was basically abrogated by Humphrey's executor, has a second life inside the government because of executive branch lawyers, and now is getting written into doctrine through sale of law, right? Back to just, Ben just, for a minute, He said he said Scalia's vision of an executive in Morrison the key point is that Scalia writes a dissent in Morrison and even someone like Rehnquist, who's a very strong conservative judge, says, "Anthony Scalia, you are out to lunch. Okay, that dissent from Morrison is now becoming the law. And that's not a 1920 story, that's a 1980s to 2020 story. Yeah, so okay, sorry. specifically yeah, a 1990s story when Democrats,
0: when Democrats watched, watched Ken, Ken Starr. Star.
2: You got it, it's, and that story you, in fact, so Ben, we gotta talk more about this. Cause one thing to me that I don't understand, I'm, I'm only 35, right? So I come to this and like that whole era is like my beginning of political consciousness, but I don't understand the dynamics. When Bill Clinton is elected president, I think my sense from reading the sources is that people expect a break with the kind of government that we had under Reagan and Bush one. And, and in particular around this centralized executive administrative control. So I wrote a book about
3: this. And so when well, I, well, I should read your book. Yeah. And um, and man, I think I, that, I've always wanted to say that. Uh, that man, re- I mean, like <laughs> Okay. <laughs> this is exciting. Ben tell us about this book.
0: Well, so the book is a is a critique of it's actually my first book. And it's a history of and critique of the star investigation. Um, based on a series of interviews that I did with Ken Starr right after he stepped down. Um, And look, you are quite right. When Bill Clinton came in, one of the first things he did was he signed a reauthorization of the independent counsel law, which had been allowed to lapse. And he did it over the uh, rage protest of his... (laughs) of his White House counsel, Bernie Nussbaum, who correctly warned him that uh, he was, it was the ultimate self-own. And um, the result was the firing of Bob Fisk as a regulatory special prosecutor of the Bob Mueller variety and his replacement with Ken. And um, this was, uh, so you're right, they came in with this, quite, you know, Humphrey's executor, Morrison-esque notion that we can live under this regime, and then they had to live under this regime, (laughs) and they couldn't do anything about Ken Starr. And over the course of uh, the subsequent seven years, and uh, and a number of felonies along the way, by the way. I mean, they were hardly innocent bystanders. Um, They came to regret that decision very much. And a lot of liberals, and if you want to understand Elena Kagan's solicitude for uh, uh, the plight of poor presidents in in unitary executive matters, Think only that she was in the White House Counsel's office in this period of time. This um, is great.
2: This is great. This is gold. I will this, check out the book. You're exactly confirming no, my intuitions.
0: This is exactly where this newfound consensus comes from. It's all about the Independent Counsel law, and the the um, and as as people watched. So the the other side of this is the non-constitutional side of Scalia's dissent in Morrison, which is the predictive aspect of what the independent life under an independent council law was like, and it came to be the most quoted thing in, in, you know, as liberal columnists would uh, they would find their sudden newfound respect for Antonin Scalia, who had predicted the Star investigation, which, of course, uh, like, I'm sure he didn't think of as himself having predicted. But, but, you know, he was describing Lawrence Walsh, and they were reading it as about Ken Starr. Um, but the point is, by 1999, when the law comes up for reauthorization, it had gored everybody's ox. It had no constituency, and so it is allowed to lapse, and the big constitutional takeaway is that Scalia was right about the independent council law, and hence had something very important to say about the unitary executive, and was had a sensitivity to structural matters that Rehnquist and the liberals did not have, and I think that was a Really, like for everybody my age, irrespective of politics, there was, and that's why there are so many people, other than the fact that he was a great prose stylist, people my age who were grudging admirers, including me, in important ways, of of Nina Scalia, because he seemed to have used a constitutional worldview to understand. Our reality in a way that nobody else on the court did, um, and I think that's the explanation. And so there's a there's a spirit of suspicion um, of everything. Now it got complicated because of Dick Cheney, but um, but I think there is a a sensitivity to the idea that the president needs to be able to fire people that traces its roots directly to if you're a republican lawrence walsh and if you're a democrat ken starr and it's all a matter of agreement by about 1997.
4: Hmm.
0: so scott's the right scott's the right age does that sound right to you a
3: hundred percent hundred percent i mean i actually think that that's um not surprisingly late but that's really insightful
0: and I think um, the 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 other factor the the Ch- the other factor with Cheney that makes it really uh, difficult is that early in the Bush administration, the administration started taking the view, and a lot of liberals went to town imputing this view to them. But they did, to some extent, take it that the unitary executive also included substantive powers.
1: I don't right? know why I thought, hold on, Ben, Just we have to go to questions because we have like 10 minutes left. But like, I, I also want to say, Noah, I apologize for ever misleading you that we would get to the second topic that we just this got. This great. I've, <laughs> had a, I've had a blast. This, I know, so is everyone else. It's been like the, like, the chat has loved you. And like Ben, like, and Scott, obviously, like everyone has great questions. Um, I just want to say that like, I have many times been like, oh, well, maybe like people will not have like, and I knew that this wouldn't happen, but I was like, maybe no one will have anything to say about the unitary executive. Maybe it'll just be a big snore fest and we'll have to move on to like, (laughs) like secondary order rationales for regulation.
3: (laughs) (laughs) This also proves my point, which is that I've, I've said before, that you should always teach a super boring subject because you'll just sound so interesting in comparison. (laughs) Noah, I feel like I need to come to your house after the show's over and for you to talk to me endlessly. You are just, you are so interesting. Scott, I I just, I'm so
2: flattered, but now I have to say that I have modeled my entire scholarly demeanor on, on what you said in those comments that you gave to whoever that poor person was in the mock job talk. So I want you to take Credit for everything that you have enjoyed about my conversation today. Oh,
3: I I I, I, I like will. You will. Like,
2: don't worry. Like looking yeah, in a
3: mirror. And, <laughs> right. Yeah, and I'll I'll uh, I'll send you my Ven my Venmo username. <laughs> um, um, I'm no, sorry. No, that, Chris, that, would, Chris. that
1: would imply, wait, Scott. That implies that he's going to pay you. You're going to pay him for saying the nice thing.
4: <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Chris. Go ahead. Chris. It Chris.
1: was the time, Scott. Hi,
4: Chris. Right. Hi. <laughs> Hi. Uh, so, Noah, as a legal historian, I'm wondering if you have any uh, insights on uh, what preceded the DOJ's memo uh, about not uh, charging a sitting president um, and whether you think to prevent future Trumps uh, that that memo should be formally withdrawn. Um, and then, what, what, other, what other mechanisms uh, could you imagine uh, the other branches, uh, legislative or judicial, putting in place to sort of, um, you know, while respecting executive authority and, and uh, checks and balances, uh, to sort of get, put the guardrails on, on presidents? <laughs> To, uh, to, to make sure that, that uh, you know, that they behave within the- Boy, a
2: nice, nice easy softball question. <laughs> I'm, just <gonna> <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not gonna have a satisfying answer. I think my, my sense is that, I, I, and I don't have any special insights as a legal historian, but my intuition is that the answer to the first question is the doctrinal answer that Ben was, was pushing me towards right at the beginning. that that because you can't really imagine the government maintaining multiple positions and the president is the head of the executive branch and prosecution is an executive function, therefore, how could the president indict himself? But the historian in me wants to throw lots of asterisks at it, because the first point is, whose idea is it that prosecution is an executive function? So one of Scott's colleagues, Nick Perillo, has this incredible book where he shows that in fact, Historically, prosecution wasn't something that was controlled by the executive. It initially was something I could just go and hire a prosecutor when a crime had been committed against me. And the transformation of prosecution—oh, sorry, Ben, you were saying something, and I couldn't hear you.
0: I want to, Ben, I want oh, oh, to bring still that go. system no. back. There are so <laughs> many people I want to prosecute, um, and oh, I oh, feel like.
1: I daughter. feel like
0: I can make, my, I can make a case. Um, <laughs> and if I have the money to bring criminal charges against people,
2: uh, I should be able to do it. The salary revolution in American law might, might be reversible.
4: But I, I did not want to come to
2: the last part of the question, because it, it gets at exactly why I'm so excited to be a law professor right now. And it's, I, I think that most of the thinking is, is exactly, I'm not, was it Chris who asked the question? is exactly as you framed it, Chris, which is how can we put the guardrails back on? And I gotta confess, I think that's a losing proposition. I think that we actually need to be thinking about democracy differently. And that's why I'm so interested in recovering the history and trying to like unsettle what is, what is I think, the totally correct intuition about how the government works now, right? It's that old SDS line, like you can't just change the complexion of the pyramid, you gotta change its structure. Like I think that if we're trying to just put the guardrails back on the president while maintaining a certain kind of top pyramidal government, it's just a lot of power in an individual office and you encounter some potential risks. So I wonder if there are other ways of of doing democracy under conditions of modernity. And Kate was making fun of me because yesterday we were talking about what I was calling second-order regulation. No, but, I wasn't but,
1: making fun of you. I loved it. <laughs> I thought it was exactly right. I loved it. Like it was great. I was sad that but we so didn't be- talk about it. Is what I was like making fun of is so we ran out of time.
2: Thank you, Kate but basically i'm i'm really interested in ways of of could you do government in ways that might um, encourage certain kinds of citizen behavior that therefore makes it less likely that you get someone like trump or that makes us less dependent on you know one individual at the top yeah and and you know that's what makes me a hopeless idealist but that's that's basically what i'm thinking about
1: kind of like Osteen's nudge but, uh, but
2: but ground up more, like let's let's, self, let's self organize <laughs> More, more worker-owned cooperatives. Less, less um, behavioral economics.
1: Yeah, Ben, you're weirdly muted, but that's it, uh, it's
0: more like Joel than nudge, actually.
1: Oh yeah, um, okay. Joel, Doctor Doom. Uh, Joel is a guest. Doctor Doom, are you there? I am. Okay, great. Go ahead with your question.
3: So I have a couple of questions. No, in the absence, in the absence of a of a change in this concept of the unitary executive. Yay. Um does the does the president actually have the ability before the time that they're impeached uh and convicted to pardon themselves and then secondly uh under this theory of uh, kind of uh, organizing uh the us's uh, usa corporation with the ceo as uh, as the ultimate administrator and the board being the uh the congress and the shareholders being the voters um why how How is it constitutional to be able to uh, protect the civil service? Why couldn't Trump fire Fauci?
2: So two great questions. The first one is definitely above my pay grade, but I will say that at least as a, one thing that's interesting is to try to understand the rationale for the pardon power. And there are two different, historically, there are at least two different things going on. One is the idea that the president is a kind of king. And at least under um, like, traditional doctrines of kingly salvation. The king is kind of religious, divine, and magical. So the king can lay his hands on you and cure you of scrofula. The king can also pardon you of any crime because all crimes exist under the king's law because the king is sovereign. So part of the pardon power, I think, derives from this like quasi-religious understanding of the leader. And if that's the understanding of the pardon power that you have, then why couldn't the president pardon himself? God can do whatever God wants, and so divinity, boom. I'm really glad word. we
0: got the word scrofula into this episode, I could have done way.
1: without it, honestly.
0: <laughs> I didn't even know what scrofula is. No, no, it's no. I just hard. think it's the first time we've done 521 episodes of this. We've had many words. This is the first time we've had scrofula.
3: Scrofula is your shoulder
0: blade.
4: <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so.
2: <laughs> No, no, the good. other the other way of thinking about the pardon power though is if you've got miscarriages of justice, right? And it's something like, and, and against that backdrop, the constitution is really concerned about building what was once called a machine that would go of itself, right? A structure that is balancing out potential harms and benefits and remedies. And if that's your vision of the pardon power, that it's about avoiding miscarriages of justice, then it seems like a problem if the president can pardon himself because it's hard to see how that fits into me a more just system. So that's the first part of the question. Second
1: ben, you, hold on is how really can you quickly. Deal that? Hold on really quickly. Ben wanted to jump in on the pardon question. Do you still want to jump Great. in, Ben? Make yeah, I want
0: very briefly. So this is uh, very closely related to the point I was making about the injection of substantive powers into the concept of the unitary executive. Uh, they're worth <clears> keeping <throat> separate. The unitary executive question is about how much control the president has over the executive branch, not how much power the executive branch has. So whether the executive branch can defy the torture statute and therefore has an inherent constitutional right to torture somebody is not a question you can answer with reference to the unitary executive at least not as anybody usefully understands the unitary executive. Similarly, how broad the pardon power is, is a question of the scope of the executive power, not the unitary, how unitary the power is. There is no question that the pardon is a unitary power. It resides personally in the individual who is the president, but that doesn't answer how broad its scope is and whether it reaches the ability to pardon himself, which I think most scholars believe it does not. Okay. That
2: was a perfect answer.
1: Yeah. Um, Noah, we pay you to say that, but please like, <laughs> wait till we're if back you in the green I have for not your seen the
0: no. Yeah. Yeah, well, <laughs> it's after the show, not
4: before. No.
0: Scott's uh, the treasurer, he handles all the money.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do. I do. I handle all the money. Yeah.
1: He's a um crypto like crypto security person so we can really trust that he, you know.
3: Yeah, I have put all of the money that we profits from the merch on the blockchain.
2: Yeah. So,
3: um, <laughs> so it's, it's it's very secure. Can I ask you just a, a a like a a slightly different question? Is it, it how many years have you been teaching, Noah?
1: This is his first semester. This
2: is my first year as a professor. Yeah.
3: Wow! Isn't he awesome? You, I know. yeah, you Doesn't speak. Like you speak. Yeah, you speak with you he's speak good, with, he's with an good authority. At yeah, yeah, yeah. Good you what he's speak, talking with, about. Yeah, you speak with. Yeah, you speak with an authority um, that's um, really impressive. And also, I really like how you're always selling. Um, <laughs> that you're always selling the nec- the next article. Because that's very important too. But no, no. In, in all seriousness, always be interested.
0: closing, as they say. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
3: In all seriousness, like this is you're you, you're really interesting. This is really interesting stuff. You're great. Great. Uh, you're yeah. so articulate.
1: Yesterday, yeah. when I when I messaged the wrong Noah, like Noah was like, "Oh, I like that other Noah. He's
4: great." <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, "Yes,
1: it's true. Uh, I know they're all like everyone likes them." So no, this. Is I've a- had
2: great role models, and I've got great friends.
1: Well, um, so you probably want to answer the second question, or maybe not. It's up to you. We're at six o'clock, so like totally up to you if you want to do it. Quickly. Yeah, no, can, you, you can, you
0: can totally to- blow off the second question if yeah. you want. You can get away with it too, because like, because Doctor Doom cool. has
2: forgotten asking it.
1: I'm the unitary executive today, motherfucker.
2: <laughs> I don't want to keep anyone who's got a role. So if you need to leave, you should go. But the the, the short answer is that it's it's a great question, and there's the, the it, it cuts to the legal tension at the heart of the building out of the government. Because at least until pretty recently, the thought would have been, well, Congress um, has the power to create and define offices. It's kind of back. You remember earlier in the conversation, Ben and Kate had a little back and forth about hey, if you can create the office, if you hire the person, can't you fire them? And so there's, there's a kind of thought there that's like, well, Congress gets to make the office and so Congress can specify the conditions on the office. And so why shouldn't Congress be able to specify the conditions under which the person can be removed? And that then runs into tension with the idea that the president needs full control. And, and we've sort of been negotiating it and the modus vivendi that we've reached right now is that the inferior officers can have some kind of protection granted by Congress, but the principal officers, those guys need to serve at the pleasure of the president. And as long as the principal officers, you know, as long as the inferior officers report to a principal officer, then it's all okay. But this actually is, is super weird. So there's a case from just last term in which the Supreme Court actually reaches into an agency, a patent office, and starts rearranging reporting lines in order to make the whole thing conform. And Clarence Thomas, who I don't usually agree with, writes a great dissent where he says, what on earth are we doing here? We shouldn't be allowed as a court to go in and actually reorganize the structure of the agency. We can just say that the decision is or isn't legal, but that's all. But the majority really is now getting into the business of figuring out who reports to whom and who makes what decision exactly in order to patrol the line that Dr. Doom is asking about. So the, 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 the real honest answer is, we don't know. You've put your finger on a great tension. You know, stay tuned. We'll check back in in a few years and see if the whole thing is still running.
1: Um, spoiler alert: probably not. Uh, like, but who knows? I don't know. Haven't you seen climate change? Also, Facebook doesn't exist anymore. Like, what? Are, I think it's oh, back. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah. Maybe. Well, maybe it'll still be around. Um, well, we're going to leave it there. That was an incredible discussion. That Maybe was- it's not
0: back. I okay. heard that Instagram was back. I'm oh,
1: getting yeah, a- Facebook's there. Okay. I'm getting a lot of kicked back emails. This is how extensive it is. Like, everyone that I've messaged that has a Facebook.com email address has now been returned to me over, the, like, the last, like, 12 hours. And, like, one of those really annoying continual, like, this can't be delivered. This can't be delivered. This can't- Shut <laughs> up. <laughs> so, like, anyway... um uh noah the audience wants you to come back again soon i would love you to come back we We would all love you to come back again soon we will yes we would that would be really great um this was really fun bring your cats more
0: cats and
2: thank you thank you all it was really lovely to chat with you all thank you for the questions and it's been great to see the chat i'm sorry that i wasn't able to keep reading it while we were all talking but we call
0: them the greek chorus and they're here every day yeah
2: they're amazing god bless them god bless them
1: I also can't read it all the time. I have to like blip in and out. And I've been doing this for 500 episodes. So it's like, it's it's a skill. Um, But we will be back uh, 22 hours and 56 minutes from now. We are going to have Britton Heller, but she had to move to next Tuesday to talk about um, augmented reality and virtual reality. Um, So yeah, so next Tuesday, Scott. We're gonna
0: do the whole show in virtual reality.
1: We're just gonna wear we're just going to wear
3: goggles. goggles. Yeah. <laughs> Can we, we do that? talk about the metaverse and how yeah. we're going to be buying and selling NFTs all the time? Um, In by, fact, I'm metaverse. going
0: to sell, To during the show, we're going to make an NFT of Scott's face and we're going to put it on the market <laughs> and um, <laughs> we're going to see how much... A unique picture of Scott looking confused is actually or, worth.
3: Or, or how about this? How about we sell off like, um, like my first tweet or something, and then we use that money um, <laughs> to,
4: to for
3: buy what a it, candy it, bar. To
4: to to
3: <laughs> to, 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 um, to defray expenses associated with the show.
0: Yeah, we could actually like uh, take a picture of uh, a screenshot. Of, um, of Kate with the Lisa Page puppet, um, and Scott breaking the internet, and yeah. me with a dog shirt, and make NFTs of them all. But I think that would just confuse the NFT buying population.
3: Yeah, that's, that's so true. It, 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 the, the NFT people, the market needs to be as efficient as it can. We can't That's make right, it and we um, would just uh,
0: perplex them.
3: Yeah. Um, by the way, I did not know when I was looking at the merch. There's actually a Lisa Page puppet bag. Bag. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I have like four of them, and I take them to Whole Foods, <laughs> and every day I just quote <laughs> someone like is like, "Holy shit, is that a Lisa Page puppet?" I feel like <laughs> and I'm like, "Yes," um, yeah. but no, it hasn't happened yet. But I'm trying. It's still ha- you know, like Brooklyn's a big place. It'll, uh, who knows? Um, I have to come to DC. Um, okay. Noah, it was so lovely to have you. We are not allowed to have fun anymore. But in lieu of fun, we have two cats and a unitary executive.
4: Ooh, nice. nice. A great substitute for fun. Thank you all
3: again. Bye-bye now.